Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, features writer for craft and special projects at IndieWire. Today my guest is writer and director James Cameron, whose new film, Avatar The Way of Water, is, one can safely say, the most eagerly anticipated theatrical release of 2022 for anyone interested in the technology of movies and how it can be used to expand the possibilities of cinema as an art form. Cameron reinvents film language just about every time he makes a movie. Hollywood films were forever changed by his innovations on T2, Titanic, and the first Avatar, and The Way of Water is no different. Cameron and I spoke over Zoom and had an in-depth discussion not only about The Way of Water's technology, but its liberating effects on Cameron and his actors, and its challenges on him and his editors. Take a listen. I guess I want to start with a kind of philosophical question about what motivates you as a filmmaker, because... You know, everybody talks about the technology, and I want to talk about the technology too, but are you somebody who is actually driven by this need to innovate and create new technology, or is it more you've got these stories you want to tell, the technology isn't there to tell them, it's more means to an end? You know, so fantasy and science fiction inevitably drives you toward a requirement to do sometimes extraordinary set construction uh, obviously visual effects, and more so as we progress, visual effects are displacing large sets, more so as we go along with, with virtual set extensions. So I don't know where one begins and the other ends. As subject matter, I like these amazing vistas, you know, speaking as an artist. Am I attracted only to the tech? No, only as a means to an end. But that end is important to me. And that end is to show something amazing, something unseen before, you know, an untouched world, so to speak. Now, you can see that across across my filmography, that impulse has taken me in different directions. I also like history, by the way, and I can imagine doing something like I did with Titanic, but in some other ancient past setting, anything from you know, Greece to Egypt to to Rome or, or, you know, anything in between. I just haven't done that yet. So to me, it's a means to an end. Now, at the same time, I recognize within myself my need for challenge on all fronts, and that includes in engineering. Difficult engineering problems appeal to me for some reason. They're not an end in and of themselves, obviously. The storytelling is the most important thing. The emotion is the most important thing. I think that I get asked this question a lot by people who believe that it's a zero sum game and you can't be good at the technical and be good at the human, emotional, subconscious, you know, full spectrum of human emotion. I don't accept that. To me, that's, that's the challenge of being a filmmaker. Filmmaking has always been a technical medium. You know, it's gotten more technical, obviously, lately, but it was always technical from the from the get go. Anyway, I like challenges on the on the storytelling side, character issues, how to work with with the actors to express that through their work. You know, and I get as much fun out of that as I do out of solving a problem like simulcam or 3D depth or, you know, anything in, in our arsenal of tools that we've created over the last you know 17 years i guess to do these avatar films so going back to december 2009 and the release of avatar how quickly after that came out and was successful 
did you start thinking about sequels and what was your first step toward that? I don't think I really, I didn't give much other than passing thought to a sequel right away. I was focused on while I was finishing Avatar, I was building a sub in Australia with a team down there. In fact, when I was at the mix on the first Avatar, I was sneaking out to, to uh, check on the pressure test of the of the sphere that was being done at Penn State. You know, the sphere being the pilot sphere, which is what we started with. That was our major engineering focus initially. So then I just got busy finishing the sub, which took a couple of years. And also we got hit by this wave of interest from indigenous communities around the world and wound up going on a little bit of an odyssey to different places to work with and, and assist First Nations communities, whether they were, you know, whether they were First Nation in Canada, whether they were various Amazonian tribes in Brazil and Peru. And that took a lot of time, it took a lot of time and energy. And, and it, I sort of felt that Avatar had made a lot of money based on shining a spotlight on their plate. They wanted their voices amplified and I felt morally obligated to do that and I still do to this day and it's a big part of what I do on the on the side philanthropically and in terms of some of our sustainability enterprises. So that took a fair bit of time and we got serious in 2013. That's when I started the writing process. I started with six months of just making notes about the characters and so on. And then we recruited a, a writer's room because I wanted to partner with other screenwriters. I'd already made the decision to make three films. We made a deal with, with Fox to do that. And then we started writing. And on the first day of writing, I walked in with a six, six months of work, which was 800 pages of notes, plopped it down and said, okay, guys, do your homework and then we'll talk. You know, we, we, we started the screenwriting process officially in uh, summer of 13. So then the next few years were, were parallel processing on writing three that became four films, designing every creature, every character, every vehicle, every cityscape, every biome, every habitat, every culture across those four movies. And trust me, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> you know, so imagine four times what was revealed in Avatar The Way of Water. That's all mapped out. Um, that's a significant amount of work. And then also that same period of time was for R&D and tech dev to really future-proof ourselves across that whole oeuvre of films. Because I'd rather stop once for a big chunk and get it all ready and then work with a kind of a, a, a rhythmic cadence forward from there where we don't have to stop and retool at each stage of the game. And that's kind of where we are right now. So in terms of the underwater performance capture, I have to assume that that introduces a whole host of new challenges. So as you were formulating an approach to that, what were some of the obstacles that came up and how did you attack them? Well, it's a big subject. If you've got a lot of time, I mean, we assumed we would do it the same way, which is we have markers on a bodysuit to capture essentially the skeletal displacement of the figure of the character. And then you apply that through something called a char map, character map to the not V character, which isn't anatomically identical to the human performer. So that was sort of baseline. And then we assumed we'd use some kind of a head rig for the facial capture. We didn't know how we were gonna deal with eyes, for example. We didn't know if it was gonna be some kind of a mask or if it would just be naked in the water and then we'd shoot through. We eventually wound up using very, very, very thin goggles. They're swimmers goggles, but they're like 
two bucks a pair. They're the, literally the cheapest goggles you can get worked the best. Because all the kind of high-tech ones all had curved lenses and, you know, nice frames and all that. But these were like two little, two little pill cups, you know, plastic pill cup for like cough syrup. These were like two little plastic pill cups and a rubber band. And, and those worked the best. But this was, you know, a year of testing to find out what worked the best. And then we had to find out, you know, because it's, you, you set up all these cameras in a big grid to shoot these marker suits from all different angles and then interpolate in real-time process a kind of a 3D point cloud of where all the actors' bones are, essentially. But we use infrared cameras for that. Now, infrared doesn't propagate through water at all. So now what are we going to use? We wanted to use something in a non-visual wavelength, so the obvious thing was ultraviolet. Nobody had ever worked with ultraviolet before, so we built the cameras, we built the housings for the cameras, we did tests, we learned from the tests, we built an actual production version of the camera with the ultraviolet LED ring. And then we stood it up in, in a, a test tank, and then we built a bigger test tank, and then ultimately we built our full-on production tank that was 100 feet long, had a big wave machine at one end, and had the ability to create a 10 knot circulating flow within it and by reconfiguring it that we treated as an underwater wind tunnel for creature riding, things like that. So this was months of development. I think the most important thing we did was we took our whole show out to the Bahamas and we tested these creature mock-ups. The creature mock-ups could be flown around through the water uh, at high speed and they could even pop out of the water and fly over the water and then dive back in. Sounds kind of impossible, but we built them. Uh, they were they were based on a water jet principle being driven by a high-performance jet ski engine. So then we had to figure out how to ride creatures. We designed the creatures, and we had to figure out how to ride them. And then we redesigned the creatures to fit what we learned ergonomically. Then we really fine-tuned our riding postures and techniques and weapons handling and all that sort of thing. Had people in wigs so that they could see how the hydrodynamic flow streams worked what the most dynamic and most beautiful uh, riding postures would be and so on. Got good at it. Then we brought it all back into the tank and taught the actors how to do it. So it was a multi-step process. It wasn't just about solving the tech. It was about solving the look and the feel, the practice of it. What did it look like? We had to figure out how, how people with tails would swim with a tail. Because an actor doesn't have a tail, going to swim with a tail. Well, we built them jetpacks, and we had a little micro switch that they could trigger with their thumb while they swam. They could switch it on and switch it off. And so, you know, we figured out this stroke. We worked with uh, champion freediver William Truebridge from, from New Zealand, who used a, a stroke that I think he had developed called a keyhole stroke. And he taught that to the actors, which was basically a breast stroke where you pull your hands in and thrust backwards like that and that arches the back and your legs are then pointed. And then when you're in that glide phase, they had to hit the micro switch, switched on the jet pack on their back, and then they'd wiggle their hips to make it look like they were using the tail during the glide phase, and then they'd repeat the stroke. So none of this was obvious. None of this was written down. There's no animals on earth that do this. I mean, we studied polywogs that are in the phase of just becoming frogs, where they've just started to grow legs and still use their tails. And we studied crocodiles, how they propel with their tail. So it was a tremendous amount of research, tremendous amount of you know trial and error, then perfecting it, 
then transferring that knowledge to the actors so that they could actually do it and to the stunt people. You know, we could probably write a book just about how we figured all this stuff out. But the key to it is having a vision of what you want it to look like. And that vision comes into focus. It's not crystal clear. For example, I didn't know exactly what their swim stroke was going to be. And we experimented. And, you know, I think when you see it in the movie, it feels right. You know, it feels not only plausible, but it looks very natural and very beautiful. And we also wanted to have something that the Metcaina kids could do that the Sully kids couldn't do. No matter how much they tried, they could never be 100% reef kids. They'd have to compensate or, or overcompensate in Loak's case because he never had a tail that he could, he could use for propulsion. So he had to try even harder, you know, like a Paralympics kind of concept. Well, you know, th this raises all kinds of questions. And in terms of the actors, I was thinking about the fact that if you make a movie like, you know, if you're shooting a scene in True Lies, for example, where you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis in their kitchen talking, if the actors discover something or something unexpected happens, it's very easy to be flexible with them and kind of catch the happy accidents. Can you still do that with all of this? I would say it's the opposite. I think that once you've established your master shot, your happy accidents become quite limited. But the beauty of performance capture, which most people aren't really hip to, is we can get a bright idea on take five and just do it completely differently. We can completely restage the whole scene. Literally, I mean, you could play a scene that was meant to be played standing facing away from each other, it could be played seated facing each other all of a sudden, because we don't, we don't care about anything we've shot. Because all I need is one good take, and from that I can extract all my coverage. And this is a profound concept that people haven't really caught up to, except for you know us, the few people that are actually making films this way. So it actually becomes quite easier for the actors in, in a lot of ways, or certainly more creative, because you're not bound by what you've already done. Every take, it's always a blank slate, because we, we haven't shot a wide shot, or a close-up, or anything. We've only done capture. And the capture creates a kind of a performance master Later, after I'm done with the actors, I'll take that performance master and we, we make a cut that's actually kind of a master scene file. And then within that, I do all my coverage. So I can do a slow, steady cam shot that arcs around everybody. I can plump the camera down and just shoot them in a static frame. I can do a slow close. I can circle overhead. I can be in a helicopter or I can be in a close up like this. And that's all from a single scene file, right? So some of the scenes in the movie are basically kind of like take three, the whole scene. Other scenes are more complicated where we really like what somebody did on a different take and they are compatible enough. We can take the, the two performances and put them into a master scene file. And then I can shoot the people together, even though they weren't, you know, we just have to be careful about sync, you know, and timing in case the, the cadence of the scene is slightly different, but that's pretty easily solved with the techniques that we have now. Well, the key to it is to always honor the actor's performance, the, the actor's impulse in the moment. Yeah, I mean, that's something I think is actually very, to a certain degree, I don't know if I want to say underrated because people recognize it, but, you know, your skill with actors, I mean, all of your movies have fantastic performances. And I'm curious for you what you think the keys are in terms of the environment you set up for the actors that helps facilitate their best work. I think the key is if it's, if it's somebody who's coming into it for the first time is to just make them comfortable. The best way to do that is to just throw them into a scene with an actor that's been doing it already. So put Trinity or, or you know, Britton Dalton into a scene with Sam and Zoe. 
Sigourney had done a little bit of capture on the first film as her, as Grace's avatar, not so much, just a little bit, but she was at least familiar with it. But she was new to her new character of Kiri, throwing her in with the other kids, letting her be a kid with the kids, you know, get her over her concern of being 69 year old Sigourney Weaver, big movie star, and just get in there and play. It's a great creative playful space it, it basically takes the acting process and completely uncouples it from the photographic process so i'm not worried about lighting i'm not worried about camera movement i'm not worried about it being in focus i'm not worried about what all the extras are doing in the background we're not dealing with uh effects practical effects like rain or fire or explosions in the background or anything that you'd be dealing with on a set um, I don't care about how fast the sun is going down because I'm on a soundstage. So it's a space of total control that's dominated by the acting process. Now that puts a lot of onus on me to do all my cinematic stuff later, but that's okay because I, I actually think part of the reason the actors respond to it so well is they've got 100% of my attention. On a live action set, they've got you know 50% of my attention. I'm also worrying about camera movement and, you know, lens selection and backlight and what the extras are doing and all that sort of thing. And I like it better because I can really focus on them thinking as the kind of the writer half of my director brain, right? All I care about is those characters, you know, and I'm, I might have spent years on the writing process. In this case, we did. So, you know, I come to it with a lot of ideas that I can share with them. They come to it with a lot of kind of raw ideas, some of which make a lot of sense. And we follow, we have the, we have the time to follow leads, to follow ideas out and, and try it, you know? And we also have the knowledge that we can ditch it. Okay, and then we tried that for a few takes, didn't really work. Let's try this. And we don't care about what we've already shot because I'm not bound by that as a master shot. You could never do that on a live action film. Now, I don't think any of these reasons are reasons to do performance capture. The reason to do performance capture is when you have a character that's a non-human character that can be acted by a human actor. So that creates a kind of a narrow range. You know, you're not going to do a talking moose this way. You'll use conventional animation. You wouldn't do a conventional scene that could be done photographically. Anything can be done photographically. Do it photographically. But the conceit of these movies is that we want these non-human characters that normally would be done with a lot of prosthetic makeup. We did two, you know, there's two, two things there. One is prosthetic makeup inhibits the actor's performance. It's additive. It forms a layer between the actor and the lens, so to speak. And actors that have done near-human or humanoid characters with latex prosthetics and then try what we're doing like this a whole lot better. You know, the, the other thing is that it just doesn't work as well because the performance can't come, come through, you know, like a simple brow furrow. How are you going to furrow a bunch of rubber? So it's limited, right? And the other thing is that we play with the physiognomy of the character so that we can extend the neck, expand the eyes, the relative proportions of the body, narrow the waist, add a tail, we did a lot of things that made it most decisively not something that could be accomplished in a suit or in prosthetic makeup. So it gives it a kind of a, what would, what would I call it, a, a cognitive dissonance 
There's a dreamlike unreality to it, and yet it seems crystal clear and real, down to the tiniest pore, the tiniest scar in the, the skin. These people seem real, but they're not. And it creates this weird cognitive dissonance in the, in the viewer, uh, which I, I think is good. I think it makes it feel like a dream experience or some kind of extraordinary experience because they can't figure it out. It, it kind of defies their, their ability, their experience base to figure it out. The questions I get asked initially are, are on, on the first film and on this one is about, like, how'd you do it, you know? And I could just say, you know, a magician never reveals their technique. But for this particular interview, we're talking about tools. And not to lead the conversation, but in terms of tools that other filmmakers are likely to be interested in, I think the most significant suite of tools on Avatar, on either one of the films, but definitely on The Way of Water, is our simulcam system, which is a suite of tools around live action production. Because most movies these days have some amount of visual effects in them, and some have a lot. But very, very few films are going to follow us down the path of performance capture. And God bless them if they do. I'm happy to share anything we, we figured out. But I actually... The entire time we were perfecting our simulcam tool set, I was thinking, people are going to want this when they see what it, what it is and what it can do. And it's kind of in a separate discipline. So we've got our capture space over here, and we've got our live action shoot over here. They're chalk and cheese. They're completely unrelated techniques and technologies. One is a stereoscopic camera system you know, based on the Cine Alta Venice, Sony Venice cameras with actual physical sets and lighting grids and all that sort of thing. And you're baking in that image. If I'm shooting these actors, it's, it's baked in. I can't change the lighting on them later. So it has to match the CG lighting that will ultimately add to it. And all the sets are CG extended and all the scenes also have CG characters that are interacting with the live actors at a different scale because the CG characters are eight, nine, 10 feet tall. And so their eye lines are all kind of up in here and we have to do all these kind of negative space compositions to account for them. So that's where SimulCamp comes in. Anybody could use that. Well, you know, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the editing because you're one of the few directors, if not the only one I'm aware of, who is a member of ACE and edits your own films. Mm -hmm. Here you're sharing the work with, I think, three other editors What's the division of labor there and how do all of these things complicate the editing process? Or is this another case where maybe, you know, you're going to surprise me and just like I thought for the actors, it was more complicated. No, it's, it's vastly more complicated from an editorial standpoint. And that's why I have such a large team. We have four editors, myself included, two other editors who have come in for brief periods of time. So four total that were run of show for five years, two other full editors who are in for a year or couple years, something like that. And then a staff of about a dozen assistants split between Los Angeles and New Zealand. So it's very edit intensive. And the reason is you basically edit the whole movie twice. You do the performance capture. You don't have any shots yet. All you got is a bunch of performances. You still have to edit those performances in great detail. And it takes months to build the scene files, the, what we call loads for the camera process for the virtual camera process. So then the actors have all gone on to other shows or on vacation. And then I'm using my virtual camera to actually start to do the coverage, the shots, which are from those scene files that the editors have put together. And it's kind of a picture in picture process. So we'll take a master and we'll do pictures in picture of the various actors. And the more, the more characters are on the scene, the more complicated it gets so that we can study 
the performance. And maybe we're mixing and matching performances from different takes, maybe even two performances from the same actor from two different takes that are blended together within the, within the master scene file. And then sometimes we find we run up against barriers of how big a master we can build. So we'll create a number of submasters for a long scene. And we have to know where I might cut to a close-up. So I have to commit in advance. All right, I don't have the close-up yet. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what any of the shots look like other than roughly in our mind's eye. But if I can commit to a close-up on that shot now, we can break the scene in two or we can break it in three. But this is a very involved process. And so far, literally, we don't have any dailies. We literally don't have any dailies yet to actually start cutting the movie. And we're two years into it at this point. And the editors are working in parallel with that, obviously putting together the scene files, the master scenes. So then I start the virtual camera process and I start figuring out what's a close up and what's a wide shot and this and that, and playing with the lighting and moving, you know, scenic elements around, a planet in the background, some vines, a waterfall, whatever it is. And then the shots begin to actually come in. And at that point, you now edit everything again. Now you have the actual shots that you want to put in the movie, but you still have to edit the scene because I'll shoot it long. I'll, you know, I'm not going to shoot a close-up to the frame. I'll shoot the close-up for the whole scene. You see what I mean? I'll shoot the master for the whole scene. I'll shoot the two shot for the whole scene. So now we start the process over. So we have to have a very tight working relationship. So the way it works is I don't do the performance edit. Well, I have done on a few scenes, but for the most part, I don't do the performance edit. I go through a selecting process. The editors divide up the work. Okay, this editor is going to do these scenes. This editor is going to do those scenes. So I'll work with the editor for a given scene. We go through the dailies, which is all the performance reference cameras. I forgot to mention reference cameras. So we have 16 camera operators that use HD with long zoom lenses to shoot close-ups and body reference shots of everybody in a scene during a capture moment. And I have to make sure it's part of my job as a director to make sure that we get those good close-ups. And we even have a way of having the camera boom that records the face go on this side or go on that side. And if I know my axis is going to be from this side, we'll boom right. And if I know my axis is going to be from this side, we'll boom left. So I make certain staging and blocking decisions early on. And then we shoot accordingly, shoot our reference accordingly. So now we're working with these reference it's just video that guys in their capture suits. It's not anything that is ever used in the movie. It's used in the editing process. I make my performance selects and the editor starts to put it all together. And we start to figure out, you know, it's kind of a rough cutting pattern that we might use later. And then they, from that, they create the loads. I, I let the editors do that with my input. Then I shoot all my virtual cameras. Now it's kind of a toss up whether the scene editor is going to cut the scene or they're I'm going to cut the scene. Often I have them cut the scene two or three or four different ways as grist for the mill. And then I'll go back through the dailies, find little bits and pieces that I know I stuck in there that they may have missed. And I'll either take their assembly, put my own swerve on it, or I'll just rebuild the scene from scratch using theirs as a guide for the ideas that work the best, right? Uh, and then sometimes after I've done my cut of the scene, I'll throw it back to them to refine it or to keep it up to date as we go forward through the VFX process. Because sometimes we identify a need for new dialogue or new fish performance. Sometimes we don't have good reference. We'll go back and do what we call FPR. FPR is facial performance replacement. So the actor can actually look at the scene 
in video, act along with it and do it again. Maybe change the line or maybe change the intention of the moment. And we use FPR a lot. We also use it to have the actor voice or just do facial performance for a moment that's done with a body double, essentially a stunt. So just the way an actor would come in in ADR and do all the vocals for a stunt scene, you know, like, ah, ah, ooh, ah, you know, all that stuff. We actually replace the face. So we never have to ha do that thing where the stunt guy's trying to hide his head during the fight. So we got all these tricks. So the editing process is, is quite intensive and, and highly uh, collaborative. But ultimately, I would say by the end of it all, pretty much every cut, every single edit in the movie has gone through my hands one way or another. They all kind of feed to me. So I'm kind of the final final bottleneck. But I listen very closely to what they say and why we pick certain things. They'll remind me of decisions that were made two or three years ago about why we liked a certain, a certain take. So it's highly collaborative in that regard. But I also have to use, because the editors don't sit in the effects reviews. So I have to use my knowledge of what I think it can look like to make the final decision of how long we should hold on a shot or how important the shot is and what I want out of it. And me going through that discipline allows me to work with the VFX team, which is also highly collaborative. Every once in a while, we'll, we'll discover that we're cutting right on the cusp of an expression change. So then we'll extend the shot by half a second or a second, something like that. And that's kind of a fun discovery when you realize that the actor's, the actor's doing something so nuanced that you didn't see it in the editing process. Now that's, that's super cool. And we, we did that a number of times. This has been great. I mean, the highest compliment I can pay you is that five minutes into the movie, I stopped thinking about technology. I was just so completely sucked into it. Well, that's great. That is, that's a very high compliment because that, that's our goal is to just create this kind of dreamlike pseudo reality and just forget about how it was done. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I really, really appreciate it. Okay, my pleasure. Bye now.